There is a garden in Jerusalem, a beautiful garden, a garden on a mountain slope and with a biblical name. But it is not the garden you are probably thinking of, because I am not referring to Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, but this one is on Mount Herzl. And the name of that garden is Yad Vashem, and that name comes from Isaiah 56, the verses 1 to 8, a prophecy fact which the Lord Jesus quoted in the text that we recently looked at about the cleansing of the temple. And in this text, Isaiah says that the foreigner will have a place, a memorial in the temple. And he does prophesy that God's saving work would be for the Jew and the Gentiles. A prophecy that the money-grabbing Caiaphas had ignored when he turned the court of the Gentiles into a cattle market, or, as that text says, a den of robbers. And the lesson of the story of the cleansing of the temple and the withered fig tree that we looked at some time ago was that it is not the adherence to the ritual or the preservation of the outward appearance of the institution, like the temple or the church, but the relationship of prayer, of obedience, and of doing right and resisting evil is what matters. And that is also what the Lord Jesus referred to when in that same text in Mark 11, he quoted not only that text of Isaiah, but also Jeremiah 7 verse 1, and through that text, our text, the Shiloh narrative, to underline that holding up the temple or the outward appearance without actual obedience is leading nowhere. And today we will look at that topic again, but now starting from the Old Testament with a different angle. Now Yad Vashem is actually the Holocaust memorial. And in one part of that garden, There is a wall, and engraved on it are the names of what are called the righteous among the nations. These are the names of the people who helped the Jewish people who were being persecuted by the Nazis. Helped the Jewish people by hiding them in their own homes. Think about the story of Anne Frank. Or smuggling them out of the country. Think about Schindler's List. Now, the attitude towards the Jewish people throughout Western Europe, the vast majority of the people, it ranged from fearfully complying to staying silent to looking the other way when gradually the evil of the persecution started, to indifference, hostility, or even collaboration. And if you ever watched Polanski's film, The Pianist, you will have gotten an idea about what that was. Only a minority stood up in action or spoke up in words against the evil that was being perpetrated. Standing up or not, and speaking up or not, 
against the evil that at times we meet on our way is the topic for our meditation this morning. And I'm using the standing up and speaking up interchangeably when I refer to them for the ease of memory as the sin of silence. Instead of speaking or acting, standing back, not getting involved or staying silent, covering it up even. And these are also questions for today, as you can read in the papers every day. It is not just for the heroic narrative of war and death, but it's all around us in daily life. There is child abuse, perpetrated and covered up by church and secular authorities. There is grooming of young people, ignored by the police. There is sexual misconduct, perpetrated and covered up by people from Oxfam. There is Jimmy Savile, Bill Crosby in the media. There is harassment in the office. There is bullying at schools. There is a wide variety of all this. And each time there is the question for the people. Do I stand up or stand back? Do I speak out or stay silent? And these questions are more difficult than some outraged journalist or some indignant talker in the media makes it out to be with the benefit of hindsight. Because they are often trying to make hay from the, from the beautiful view that their perceived moral high ground offers them. The questions are difficult. In the war, when was it the time to act? When the occupiers introduced registration, an identity card? When they proceeded to identification, they put the stamp of the, G, the J on the Jewish card? When it went to isolation, they were excluded from meetings or public places. When it proceeded further to concentration of the Jewish people in a ghetto. When it went to the transportation to an unknown better place. When was it the time to act? Or maybe more closer to home, bullying in the office. When do you speak up? When a colleague is ignored, when he or she is cold-shouldered, when they become the target of bad jokes, of nasty jokes, of sexual jokes, when they are bumped into when they get coffee, or when they are verbally abused, physically abused, sexually harassed, when do you speak up? Or think about Oxfam. Did the greater good of their fundraising for poor people all over the world indeed weigh up to the moral hazard of silence about that misconduct? You see, when the wrong is deemed unspeakable in polite and pleasant conversation and the unspeakable is not spoken of in civil company, then there is the language of silence. The German poetry for the first few decades after the war and its holocaust has been described as the language of silence. 
because in that poetry there was of the evil of the Holocaust no recognition, no acknowledgement, no repentance, no protest, and so also no mourning and no reconciliation. Because you see, silence can be not just the absence of words, but it is the looming presence of that absence, and it can become oppressive. Overwhelming indeed. People are talking and talking and talking, but avoiding the unspeakable. And this is suffocating relationships and making people sometimes mentally suffer. That is why so often we see people relieved and mentally recovering when the abuse that they had to suffer silently in childhood comes into the public domain. The wrong perpetrated against them cannot be reversed and the evil cannot be undone. But at least, and at last, the oppressive silence has ended. There is then already some relief in the fact that the wrong has been recognized and acknowledged. But you see, even when you have concluded that you must speak, you must speak up or stand up, speak out or stand up, and you have mustered your courage, then it is likely that you will run into the resistance from the carpet sweepers, because there are always, everywhere, armies of carpet sweepers, people who want to keep it quiet, out of the public limelight, in essence, cover it up. And they are there with an endless list of arguments. Peace, harmony, reputation, expediency, practicality, moving on. Because either they are knowing too much, they are the perpetrator, or they refuse to become aware, or they do not want to get mixed up. And if you reflect upon what we have been reading in the press the last few years, then you have one platoon of that army already seen marching by, wearing bishops' garments and clerical collars, those responsible for children's homes. And theirs was the elevated language of peace, harmony, and the reputation of the church. And the next platoon that we have seen marching by were police uniforms, and theirs was the language of political expediency. After all, it wouldn't do to be seen as a racist or politically incorrect in pursuing men from a minority group for grooming, grooming young girls. And it would not be expedient to be acting against the fellow members of the establishment in these cases where it was the local bigwigs pleasing themselves in the orphanages. And then there may be a platoon of sharp, business-suited HR people whose language, when it comes to being in the office, is one of practicality and feasibility. They look at the balance of power and decide that the revenue generators and the wealth creators and the unassailable celebrities, they cannot be reprimanded. And therefore, a waffle meeting and a bland memo to the files will have to do. And you can continue that list, and it goes on and on. And the arguments appear so often reasonable, and the carpet sweepers are so often seemingly respectable. But 
As Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian at the time of the Second World War, has said, silence in evil is evil. It is siding with the oppressor. And as that silence becomes oppressive, the silent one becomes complicit. It's an observation that many throughout history and across a broad spectrum views and philosophies have agreed with. Martin Luther King said a man dies when he refuses to stand up for what is right. Einstein said the world will not be destroyed by those who do evil, but by those who watch them without doing anything. And in a similar vein, there is Abraham Lincoln and Bishop Tutu and so on. Now, some time ago, we looked at Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. And what the consequences are if there is no confession and no repentance. What happens if we are silent about our own sin? Now we will look at what the consequences are of staying silent about another sin, complicity. Now, I do not know what the challenges are that you face in this respect, and I certainly do not pretend to have an answer for each individual case. But what we can do is listen to what God's word says about such a case. Now, our text is taken from the Shiloh narrative. And in Mark 11, the Lord Jesus indirectly referred to Shiloh narrative when he exposed the hollowness of Jerusalem's religious establishment. Robbers, he called and the rituals. And now we will look at the narrative itself. Now, the Shiloh narrative sits in the book of Samuel, which is part of a sequence of books, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, and Kings. And in these books, there are two strands, two meta-narratives, two overreaching stories. The first one is about God's work to keep his people to live in obedience. And we see that he sends them judges. They turn out to be a disaster. He allows kingship, but Saul was disobedient. He makes his covenant with David, and that house sticks it out for 400 years, but then ends in failure. Till finally there is the royal entry of the Lord Jesus as the Messiah King. And then in parallel therewith, there is the other meta-narrative, the overarching story of God's presence in their midst, if they are obedient. First in Shiloh, we read how that ended. And then in the temple built by Solomon, which in the end, again, they treated as an artifact, thought they could control God by having the temple. And finally, as the Lord Jesus tells the Samaritan woman, in the possibility of worshipping everywhere in spirit and in truth with Jesus as our mediator in heavens, as it is described in the book of Hebrews. But along these two meta-narratives, we are sometimes given more detail of what happens than is strictly necessary for these two strands. Interwoven therewith, there are other shorter narratives, like the sections that we did read here. And I would like to summarize the message for you this morning as follows. The sin of Eli is the sin of silence. 
And we will listen to the lesson of this story by briefly looking at the four building blocks. The sin, the silence, the speaking, and the solution. The sin of Eli is the sin of silence. And we will see the sin or the evil, which was the robbery by Hofni and Finehas. And then the silence, the not speaking up, the complicity by Eli. The speaking by the man of God, by Samuel, and by the dying mother. And then the solution, the coming kingship of Jesus. So then the sin of Eli is the sin of silence. And we see in the first place the sin or the evil, Hophni and Pinehas's robbery. And the first thing that we notice in our text is that the Bible doesn't mince its words. There is no euphemistic language, no tiptoeing or pussyfooting around the reality, no disguising impolite, extenuating circumspect language. The situation is painted to us in stark, dark, and clear colors. And if you picture it before your mind's eye, I'm sure there was the position, there was the garments, there was the ritual, there was the language, there was the power of the ecclesiastical authorities. But the Bible looks at only one thing, behavior. And the conclusion is worthless, didn't know God. So about the church authorities of the day, the Bible says literally in the Hebrew, they were sons of Belial, children of the devil, no regard for the Lord. It takes only 10 words, the first sentence about it in verse 12. Now, you can read in the book of Leviticus that there was a precisely prescribed part of the sacrifice that was allocated to the priests. But they took what was not theirs from the offerings, the donations in today's language, the gift aid for the Lord. And the scribes are text in vivid language. They took as much as they could without any kind of excuse, logic, or reason. A three-pronged fork they plunged into the pot. A three-pronged fork. So the loot was maximized. And they plunged it in. So they got a lot from the pot. And they were fattening, says our text, themselves on the choice part of every offering made by my people Israel. Now, it was also prescribed that the fat of the offering was to be burned before the Lord, and then the priests could have their share. But these church authorities, these church authorities were not content with the regular entitlement. They wanted more and they wanted fresh meat. And they did not take, they did not hesitate to take what was not theirs by bullying, by force, and by abusing their power. And it must have been a miserable experience for the powerless people who came from all over the country to offer their sacrifices. And you can hear the indignation of the narrator in verse 14. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. And in doing so, they were treating the Lord with contempt. More than their share from what was offered to the Lord. And also before the bringers could use it for their purpose. 
And the conclusion is those who despise will be lightly esteemed. In Samuel's message, he says, the people's ears will tingle. The language about their behavior and its consequences was no waffle, no smoothing over, no avoiding the confrontation, no carpet for peace sake. Their ears, says our text, will tingle. They will hear, so brutally clear will it be. You see, the Bible is often more radical than we are inclined to be. And then there is in the second place the silence, Eli's complicity. And again, the narrative is crystal clear, and it's revealing, and to drive the message home, the indictment against Eli is repeated twice. Eli, we read, responds to reputational damage, not to actual behavior that he must have observed. He did not know or he did not want to know. The blindness is mentioned later, but is not offered here as an excuse. And also his talking is low-key, soft-pedaling, totally understating. There are questions about disappointing rumors about their behavior. But the qualification of this approach, a description of what this approach really amounted to, is given in no uncertain terms later in the text. It says there was no restraining. There was weakness, culpable weakness. And in chapter 2, verse 29, when it is about the prophecy of the man of God, he says, you, that's still the plural, scorned my sacrifice. It's plural because it includes the sons of Eli, the sons who were actually doing it, and Eli by complicity. But then the man of God comes to the core of the problem. Why did you, and the you is now singular, it's Eli, honor your sons more than me? Honor, the word later used in Ikabot, kabot. He valued the relationship with his sons higher than his duty to do the right thing. And that is often the root of silence. The desire to have peace, or at least a working relationship with the perpetrator of the wrong, leads to the silence about this wrong. But the text is very clear. The one who stayed silent became guilty as well of the abuse of the sacrificial system and of the theft of the people's giving. Eli may not actually have eaten from the plunging three-pronged fork, but he, came, he became complicit by not standing up against them. And then in chapter 3, verse 13, the prophecy to Samuel. Repeat it to em- emphasize its importance. And the focus there again is on the silence Eli is addressed. Because you know and you did not restrain His actions, the feeble questions, were weighted and found wanting. And the implication is that he could have done more to stop it, but in not doing so, he was found lacking. He knew. That is clear from chapter 2, verse 25, and chapter 3, verse 18. And God is verbally acknowledged. And there are some pious platitudes, but they did not shape in the end, his behavior. There was no real rebuke and no action. And it's not the lack of power or influence, but the not speaking and standing up. 
because preserving the relationship prevailed over seeking God's honor. It was the reputation that he worried about, but the substance of the abuse was left uncorrected. And isn't that what we see so often around us? And then in the third place there is the speaking by the prophet, by Samuel, and by the dying mother. And again, to ensure that the message gets through, the verdict is repeated three times. And the first remarkable thing to note in our text here is that the recorded prophecies and the judgments are not addressed to Hophni and Phinehas, the perpetrators, but to Eli, the one who did not stand up and speak up. The prophet mentions the sons only in passing and their, day is, their death is only announced as a sign to Eli. But the judgment is passed on Eli and his house. Your, your, your. Samuel's prophecy also doesn't focus on the sons but again on Eli. So the focus is on the silence. And then there is stark language in chapter 2 verse 30. The punishment is, you have not honored me, you will not be honored. You will not grow old, which was a sign of blessing. Because on his behavior, on this not standing up, would rest no blessing. And that is so often the case, as we can see in the world around us. The rot continues. And Samuel's message is, the people's ears will tingle. Eli, in response, mouths and pious language. What the Lord does is good. But what is missing from these phrases, of course, a change in attitude and action. And then it is again summarized in the speaking, in the prophetic speaking of the dying mother in Israel, Ikabot. The word kabot means the glory or the honor. And it is the same word that is used for the honor, the glory of God with which he filled the temple in Isaiah 6, for example. The glory in the temple indicated God's presence in the midst. But that glory is gone, no longer there. For if sin meets with silence and is not spoken against because conflicts need to be avoided and the practicalities of working relationships are prioritized, then the Lord will depart. That was also Jeremiah's warning when he referred to the fate of Shiloh in his days when disobedience broke the covenant, but the Jewish people thought that the outward structure of the temple would save them. And that is what the Lord saw again when he came to the temple at the time of that cleansing. The edifice is still standing, and the organization seemingly functions, but when wrong and evil are not opposed, then it is ikabot. The fate of the Shiloh sanctuary is that God departed. It's a kind of a proto-cleansing of the temple referred to by Jeremiah and pointed at by Jesus. But then in the last place, there is the solution or the salvation, or the redemption, both the Lord's exposing and his atonement. Now, the Shiloh narrative does not have a happy ending. 
there Ikabot, the verdict of the dying mother is the last word that is left hanging there as a permanent warning against the sin of silence. And only in a few lines later in 1 Samuel 22 verse 18 and 1 Kings 2 verse 27 are we told how Doeg the Edomite kills all Eli's descendants bar one and how this last one, Abiatar, is disposed by Solomon, as it says, fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken at Shiloh about the house of Eli. Now, for the solution, we need to return to the larger narrative, the larger narratives in Samuel and in Kings, books that together were often called Four Kings in the Hebrew Bible, about the temple and about David's house. The two major strands about God's promise to be in the midst of his people and the promise of the Messiah as David's descendant. Because from Eli, one strand in the narrative moves on to Solomon, the better judge, in whose days there was again God's revelation, then to the kingship that God allowed to lead his people to the covenant with David. And so, along the sorry stories of many failing kings, finally to the Lord Jesus, the promised Messiah, the promised eternal king. And from that sanctuary in Shiloh that now stood empty, another strand of the narrative goes on to illustrate the capture of the, that the capture of the ark did not mean that God was captured or defeated. But it goes on to report the return of the ark, the building then by Solomon's temple. And then again, there is the sorry saga of the failing church and temple leadership exposed by Jeremiah and still there to be found by the Lord Jesus at the time of Caiaphas. But then also that strand finally goes on to the Lord Jesus, who, as Hebrews 8 to 10 tells us, having brought the once and for all sacrifice, is now our eternal mediator in the heavenly sanctuary. And he will ensure that, as it says in Psalm 85, love and faithfulness meet and peace and justice kiss each other. Then there will be no more stealing, harassment, bullying, violence, nor the language of silence. So then briefly and in closing, what can we learn from the Shiloh narrative? Well, one thing, as an aside in a way, that you can learn is that the unity of Scripture is not just a creed or dogma by theologians, but it is something that you can experience yourself if you read in context. And for that, you don't need to be a theologian. You just read through your Bible and take the time and the trouble to look at the cross-references and the quotations in your study Bible. And then you will see for yourself the multifaceted unity of God's breathed-out word throughout the many centuries that it was written. But then, of course, there are also the the lessons from the message of that brief story about Eli and the details of the Shiloh narrative. On the importance of standing up and speaking out about evil versus the sin of silence.
And we saw in the text first sin, the clear description of the evil. How the church authorities of the day plunged their three-pronged fork in the pot and bullied the people out of their offerings. And the silence, the clear indication that the silence is held responsible for the continued rot of that evil. You scorn my sacrifice by honoring your sons more than me. And then there is the speaking, the stark condemnation of the silence, also guilty of that evil. He knew, but he did not restrain them. And then there is the language of the verdict. On the combination of the evil and the complicity through that silence, it is your house, Eli, that will be terminated. But you may think, by the time that one's name ends up engraved on a monument like in Yad Vashem, one is usually a dead hero. And is that role for an ordinary person like me? Well, the Bible is addressed to ordinary people like you and me. So I think it is possible for ordinary people to stand up, to speak up, and not to stay back or stay silent. In fact, I know it is. Because my grandparents' name are on that monument, and they were very ordinary people. Special to the family, of course. But in the eyes of the world, ordinary people living ordinary lives, doing ordinary things. Yes, standing up and speaking out is often difficult. And many stand by and stay silent. And whistleblowers in our society are more often hurt than heard. And there is always an army of seemingly convincing, maybe well-meaning and respectable carpet sweepers. The reputation, the future cooperation, the greater good, the practicalities. But our text equates Eli's prioritizing the relationships with his sons as honoring them more than God. And it equates his complicity with fattening himself on the choicest parts of every offering made by the Israelites. Now often in the world and in the church evil prevails and our defeats require the Lord's victory. And that is what the meta-narrative tells us. First, there is the upturn of David and the promise that the Savior will come from his house. And of Solomon asking for wisdom and building God's temple. But it did not last. The evil of the church leaders around the temple resumed. And in Jeremiah 7, again, the prophet is complaining about stealing and perjury at the temple, making it a den of robbers. And Jeremiah then reminds them of the fate of Shiloh. And a few years later, indeed, Solomon's temple is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And the Lord finds that Caiaphas has turned the rebuilt temple into a money machine through the market on the court of the Gentiles. And he exposes the hollowness of the religious structures, and a few years later the temple is definitely destroyed by Titus. And also the worldly leaders. Saul's kingship ends in ignominy. David's house kept stumbling till it finally ends in the exile. 
but the Lord, David's great descendant, did come. And he entered Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen to bear my name in a triumphant procession. And as we saw at the time that we looked at the cleansing of the temple, he engineered through that cleansing of the temple the final confrontation with the ecclesiastical establishment to achieve once and for all atonement and reconciliation. And that reconciliation that is referred to at the beginning of Hebrews 10 is the basis for the exhortation at the end of Hebrews 10 to persevere and not shrink back. And the Lord Jesus himself promised, as we read in Mark 13, verse 11, that he will give courage and the words to speak in the face of evil. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, whether a secular or a church court, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Spirit. For the purpose of that salvation and the mediation is not for us to have a quiet life, but so that, says Hebrews 9, verse 14, we may serve the living God. Also, in we too, standing up and speaking out. Amen.